right, this morning our reading comes from Romans 15, 1 through 13. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we may have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live with such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Great to be here with you this morning. Uh, We are starting a new series uh, this Sunday. Actually, for the next five weeks, we're going to be going through a sermon series uh, essentially about our DNA as a church. So we're going to be talking about um, what we value and how these values have shaped us. And uh, big surprise, like every other Christian church throughout history, we share a lot of the same values. Uh, we We value God. We value his work and the gospel. We value his word and we value his people. All right, this is, these are values really that we share with every other Christian that has existed in history. Uh, we share these values with every other church, but these values have shaped us in a unique way. We have a particular context. We've uh, had a particular journey. Um, so the gospel Uh, has shaped us in a way that's unique to our context, a way that's unique to our people. Um, Real quick, let's look at Jude, verse 3. I think I got this as a slide. Yeah, here we go. So Jude writes, in verse 3, he says, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. The faith. Jude is not talking about uh, the faith that we have personally. He's talking about the faith, the body of doctrine uh, that defines Christianity. Um, So our endeavor, our hope, our goal is to hold fast to this faith. This is what we confess. This is what we believe in. This is what we adhere to. uh, But this faith has shaped us in a way that's uh, specific to our context and specific to our journey. So this is what we're going to be looking at for the next five weeks, who we are as a church. All right, with that said, let me pray for us and we'll get into our text this morning. Father in heaven, we, God, we come before you this morning and Lord, we humble ourselves before you and we ask, Lord, that you would humble us. Uh, We need you, Father. 
Uh, we need you to soften our hearts. We need you to open our hearts and our minds uh, to your word, to the truth about your son, Jesus, to the truth of what he's done for us. God, help us to see your goodness and your glory, your generosity towards us, God. Uh, we need you to open our eyes. Uh, we need you to soften our hearts, Lord. God, would you uh, forgive us and be merciful toward our pretense and our arrogance. God, would you be merciful towards me and my arrogance, God. Uh, we love you. We humble ourselves before you again. And we just ask that you would be at work amongst us, God. We love you. We know that you love us. You love your people. You've set your love upon us. And we know that you're faithful. So we place our trust in you, God, and we look to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, in my estimation, the most well-known, probably the most famous hymn in the English language is Amazing Grace. Um, I think I knew this hymn or was familiar with it even when I was a non-Christian. Right, very popular, uh, really famous hymn throughout history. We all know the lyrics, right? Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Uh, really popular hymn, really famous hymn, and uh, many of us are probably familiar with the man who wrote this hymn, John Newton. Uh, John Newton, he doesn't have the best hairstyle, uh, but uh, incredible hymn writer. Um, he wrote... He was well known for, for the hymns that he wrote. Uh, eventually, he became a beloved pastor um, and faithful believer. But before, before he placed his faith in Jesus Christ, before God transformed him, uh, he really was a miserable, wretched person, right? It's interesting that he includes this word, uh, wretch, right? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. He really was a wretched person. Uh, the best way I can describe John Newton is that he was a hurt person that was hurting other people. Uh, he lost his mother at a very young age, um, and as a young adult, uh, he was placed in this situation, which was basically like uh, he was forced into servitude, he was, uh, essentially enslaved for a period of time. But once he was freed from that, once he was rescued from his bondage, what, what did he do? He turned around and he joined the slave trading business. So he was a hurt person that was hurting other people. He even wrote about this time in his life. He said that he was capable of any sin. But the, the gospel transformed this man. God transformed his life. He became a beloved pastor who was well known for his love and his kindness towards people. He uh, opposed the tr slave trading business that he was once a part of. Uh, this is what he wrote about himself later in life. He said, Once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith I had long labored to destroy. The gospel transformed this man. The gospel turned the life of this man around. And like I said in this series, we're taking a look at what we value, we're taking a look at what has shaped us, and at the top of this list, 
is the gospel. For it is the power to save and transform sinners. Brothers and sisters, I I hope we can all see that without the gospel, we have nothing. There is no hope without the gospel. There is no one to free us from sin, no one to free us from death. Without the gospel, we are hopelessly and utterly lost. For sinners in need of a savior, the gospel is everything. So as a church, we want the good news of Jesus Christ, we want the gospel to influence absolutely everything that we do. We don't want it to be just something that we teach or something that we include in our bylaws or in our statement of faith. No, we want the gospel's influence to be everywhere. And this pervasive influence is what we call gospel culture. So this brings us to our main idea this morning, and, and this is based off of uh, the passage that we read, Romans 15, verses 1 through 13. According to Romans 15, verses 1 through 13, gospel culture is the hope of Christ uniting the body of Christ for the glory of God. So that's a mouthful, but we'll look at this systematically, point by point. First, we'll look at the hope of Christ. And really here, we're focusing on what our hope is based on, uh, the truth about what Jesus did. Point number two, uniting for the glory of God. This is the the purpose of uh, unity and community. And then point number three, the body. Who can make up this body of Christ. Gospel culture is the hope of Christ uniting the body of Christ for the glory of God. All right, let's, let's jump into point number one then, the hope of Christ. Now, as, as some of you may have noticed, hope is the major thread that is running through this passage. All right, it pops up in several places, verse 4, verse 12, and twice in verse 13. So often repeated, very significant theme in this passage. Uh, Really, you read this passage carefully, everything kind of centers around this hope that Paul is talking about. And uh, the thing that makes biblical hope distinct, what makes it different from the way that we think about hope, is biblical hope rests on something tangible, and objective, right? Biblical hope rests on something that's real. We don't always use the word hope in that kind of context. So take for example, I remember as a freshman in high school, uh, it was my last period in high school, was, was math. And this was towards the end of the year, and we had a math test. It was all multiple choice, fill in the blank, on one of those like, standardized testing sheets. So options A through D. Um, At at this point in my time as a student, uh, I was just, you know, I just wanted to be done. This was my last class of the day and I just wanted to get out of there. So what did I do? I took this sheet and I just randomly filled in the bubbles for however many questions there was. There's like 70 questions. So uh, I have a one out of four chance of getting each question right. 
So I just randomly filled in all these answers. Now, part of me was hoping that I would get a halfway decent grade. Because that is totally within the realm of possibility. Like, that could happen. There is a statistical chance that could happen. Now, you add on top of this, if, if God wanted to, he totally could have given me a grade that was decent. Right? So, I, so part of me, part of my heart was hoping that God would do something for me. Right? Part of me was hoping in this possibility. That is not biblical hope in the least. That is not biblical hope at all. Biblical hope is not based off of something that God could do for you. Biblical hope is based of, off of what God has done. What he has done for you. His finished work. Biblical hope is based off of something objective, real, something tangible. The work of Jesus Christ in history. What he has accomplished. What he has done. And Romans chapter 15 describes this work in two different ways. Right? Christ's work is outlined like this in Romans 15. Paul says that he bore, that Jesus bore our reproach. We see that in verse 3. And then in verse 8, we see that he became a servant. This is two, two ways of describing the same thing. Jesus bore our reproach. And Jesus served us, right? So uh, when we think about Jesus humbling himself by becoming a servant, right? How did he serve? How did he become a servant? By bearing our reproach. So two things, two ways that the work of Jesus Christ is described. And the, the mention of hope that we have in verse 4, if you read these verses carefully, you'll see that they connect back to Christ bearing our approach in verse 3, and then the hope mentioned in verses 12 and 13 connects back to uh, how Jesus became a servant in verse 8. All right, so to unpack this a little bit, let's go ahead, read again uh, together verses 1 through 3 in Romans chapter 15. Here Paul writes, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So in these verses, Paul is encouraging a culture defined by the gospel. He's encouraging a culture where the strong bear with the failings of the weak, a culture where we're more concerned about each other's needs than our own needs, a culture where we seek the good of the other person. Why? What's the basis for this? Well, in verse 3, it's because of what Jesus did, because 
uh, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Now you look in your Bibles, you'll see quotation marks around this statement. Uh, This is a quotation from Psalm 69, verse 9. And this context is important, helps us understand this uh, better. Because in Psalm 69, the psalmist is addressing God. He's speaking with God. And he's saying to God, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Now in plain language, in plainer language, the psalmist is saying, the way that other people disgraced you, that treatment has fallen on me. Right? The blasphemies that other people have blasphemed you with, That has all fallen on me. That's been credited to my account, you could say. So Psalm 69 is a prophecy, really, about how Jesus was treated like a blasphemer. Jesus was treated like a traitor. The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. We are the the ones who reproached God. We are the ones who treated him disgracefully, yet all of the blasphemy that we've accrued for ourselves, all of the treachery, all of the deceit, all of the hatred fell upon Jesus. He was treated like a blasphemer and an enemy so that we could be counted as sons and daughters. Great illustration of this is, of course, In the Chronicles of Narnia, Uh, if you've read the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, or if you've seen the movie, uh, there's a main character. His name is Edmund. And throughout the movie, throughout the book, Edmund is a traitor, right? He's betrayed the king of Narnia. He's betrayed Aslan, and he's betrayed his family, right? He's betrayed his brothers and sisters. He's working for the wicked queen, right? Who wants to enslave all the people in Narnia? Uh, so he's a traitor. That's, that's what he is. And by the end of the book, Edmund is found out, right? Everyone realizes that he's a traitor, and it's time for him to pay the penalty for his treachery, for his treason. And that penalty is death. He deserves that 100%. Right? He's betrayed the king of Narnia. He's betrayed his family. But what does the king do? What does Aslan do? He moves Edmund aside, pushes him aside and says, no, I'm going instead of him. I'm paying this price instead of Edmund. He takes his place, exchanges his life for Edmund's life. This is what Jesus did. This is what he accomplished in history. And this is what hope is built on, according to Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 3. The Lord became the servant. The king was treated like a traitor. The son of God substituted himself, exchanged his life for the lives of sinful people. The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. He traded places with us, exchanged his life for ours 
so that he would bear the condemnation that we deserve and so that we might experience the blessings that he deserves. This is the truth that our hope is built on. This is the historical fact. This is the historical reality that Jesus accomplished. This is the truth of the gospel. And when this hope fills the body, and when God unites the body of Christ, that's where we get genuine Christian community. That's where we get gospel culture, as we like to call it. So let's look at point number two. There um, are two things that set Christian unity apart. Point number two, we're looking at how God unites the body for his glory. Now, in my experience, uh, really everyone appreciates unity. Everyone appreciates good fellowship and community. Non-believers appreciate good community. Everyone likes deep, meaningful friendships. But there are two things that set Christian unity and Christian community apart. And the first thing is what Christian uh, unity is founded upon. It's founded upon God. It's founded upon his work, his word, and his spirit. According to Paul, we are connected to the hope of Christ. Number one, through God's word. That's what we see in verse 4. We see uh, Paul says, Whatever was written in the former days, so he's talking about scripture, whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope, right? We're filled with this hope through the scriptures. In verse 13, that we see that we're connected to this hope through God's spirit. Paul says in verse 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. So church, what I want us to see is that there's no such thing as genuine Christian community. There's no such thing as gospel culture without God's word and without God's spirit. We are utterly reliant on God to bring the truth of the gospel to bear upon our hearts. And we are utterly reliant on God to produce a culture where the precious news of the gospel is treasured more than anything else. Where it's treasured more than uh, what we see in the world, more than what we see in politics, where the influence of the gospel is more powerful uh, than anything else that might be going on in our lives. Right? Christian community is set apart by its foundation. It's founded on God's work, it's founded on his word, and it is founded on his spirit. The second thing that sets Christian community apart is its goal, which is the glory of God. Uh, if we look at verses 5 and 6 together, Paul writes, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So in these verses, we see that unity 
is a God-given gift. It's something that God grants. Paul says, may the God of endurance grant you to live in such harmony. Unity uh, is a gift, and the glory that we give to God is uh, a product of this Christian unity. That's what we see in verse 6, that uh, God produces this community that glorifies him. Therefore, Paul says in verse 7, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. In verse 7, we see that we are active participants in building this community that glorifies God. So if you guys are tracking what's going on here, in verse 6, we saw that uh, this community that glorifies God, well, it's a gift. It's something that's granted by God. All right, may God grant you harmony for his glory. In verse 7, Paul says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for God's glory. So in verse 6, unity that produces glory for God, that's a gift from the Lord. In verse 7, we are the ones who are actively participating in building this community that glorifies God. So a question we can ask ourselves is who is responsible for producing this community that glorifies God. And maybe we, hopefully we all see the tension there. Uh, Who is responsible for producing this community that glorifies God? Is it God who gifts us with this unity or is it us who welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us? Well, the answer is yes, both. What I want us to see here is that loving one another for the glory of God is both a gift and a responsibility. God is utterly sovereign, 100%. He's in control of everything. And, And all the gifts that we receive, they come from his good and gracious hand. At the same time, we are 100% commanded to do this. You see, God is sovereign over both the end product and the means to achieving that end product. Here we have two perspectives on the same thing. Divine perspective and human perspective. From our human perspective, kindness and hospitality is how we produce this community that is set apart, this community that glorifies God. God's sovereign will is accomplished through the decisions and choices that we make. And that may not make any sense to us. But that's okay because we serve a God who utterly transcends everything that we know and understand about cause and effect He utterly transcends uh, what we understand about will and and how we make decisions, right? He is in charge and uh, he rules over this universe in a way that is far beyond our comprehension. 
Therefore, church, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. This is uh, the heart of gospel culture. Treat one another as Christ has treated you. Right? We've all heard like the, the golden rule, right? That uh, I should be treating you guys as I want to be treated. The gospel elevates that standard exponentially because the gospel tells us to treat one another not as we would like to be treated, but as Jesus has treated us. Again, a really good example of this is, uh, comes from the life of John Newton. Um, at one point in John Newton's pastoral career, there was a neighboring pastor, a pastor in a neighboring town. His name was Thomas Scott. And this guy, like, kind of antagonized John Newton, harassed him, right? They're both Christians, but they didn't get along, right? So not much has changed from then to now. Uh, if, if you, like, we could think about it this way. Thomas Scott was, like, on the theologically liberal end of the spectrum, while John Newton was on the theologically conservative end of the spectrum, and we all know that no matter what it is, like uh, conservatives and liberals, they can't get along with each other. So there was a time in Thomas Scott's life where he faced a, a great deal of discouragement. Things were not going well for him. So he actually went to John Newton to seek some counsel. And, and this is what he had to say about his experience with John Newton. Thomas Scott said, under discouraging circumstances, I had occasion to call upon him, and his discourse so comforted and edified me that my heart, being by this means relieved from its burden, became susceptible of affection for him. You know, this guy harassed John Newton, and, and this guy... Uh, disagreed with John Newton on, on several important issues. So John Newton really could have dismissed Thomas Scott, had nothing to do with him. He could have said, you know what, you, you deserve this. Uh, but he didn't do that. Instead, John Newton treated him with kindness, generosity, and affection. He welcomed Thomas Scott as Christ had welcomed him. Church, we are all called to this, all right? This is God's instruction for his church. So I know that hospitality is like a, a ministry that we have here in the church, but really the whole church is called to show hospitality, to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. All right, this brings me to my last point. Thinking about the body, who can make up the body of Christ? In this last section, Paul explains uh, who can be considered a part of Christ's body. And we all know the short answer is anyone. Right? Doesn't matter your background. Doesn't matter uh, if you come from a Muslim background or a Mormon background. Doesn't matter if you're conservative or liberal. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you trust in him alone for your salvation, then you are a part of the body. You're in. 
In verse 8, we're told that Jesus accomplished his work of salvation. We're told that he became a servant to show God's faithfulness to the Israelites. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. So that's to the Jews in order to show God's truthfulness, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. These are the Israelite Jewish patriarchs. So Jesus accomplished his work to show God's faithfulness to the Jews. But then, for the next four verses, for the entire rest of the paragraph, we're told how God's faithfulness to the Jews blesses the Gentiles. This, of course, is a huge deal. Not just because, you know, we generally know that Jews and Gentiles didn't get along back then. And not just because of that, but because of the context of the book of Romans specifically. You see, the Roman church uh, experienced something interesting, you could say, like early on in their history. So in 49 AD, the emperor Claudius kicked all of the Jews out of Rome, anyone who is ethnically Jewish. That included Jewish Christians. So they all had to leave Rome for several years. And these Jews, these Christian, these ethnic Jews that became Christian, they were, one, like they were very instrumental in building the early church in Rome. Like they had the places of leadership. They kind of formed their church culture. So now they're all kicked out. So who's left to take care of the church? Who has to take care of the church? The Gentiles. But then after a time, the Jews are allowed back into Rome. They're a part of the same church again. So of course, there's going to be some conflict there because their cultures are different. There's going to be some cultural conflict. Uh, It'd be like this. Just, Just imagine that, let's say, Pillar Church of Okinawa was started by all Marines. And Marines occupied all the places of leadership and uh, the congregation consisted mainly of Marines, right? That, that culture, that church culture would be interesting to say the least, right? No facial hair. Everyone would have the same haircut, high and tight. Uh, There'd probably be a PT test for church membership. You gotta bench press at least 225, hit 20 pull-ups unbroken. And look, listen to me, from what I've heard, I don't don't know, but from what I've heard, there'd also be a lot of crayons around. You know, in, in every seat for taking your notes with. Now let's say all these Marines have to leave the island for a year, right? They're on exercise, something like that. Now all the Air Force guys are left. They, they are, they're in charge now. They, they got to run the church. Things are going to look differently. Right now we got facial hair on the weekends. Everyone's wearing flip-flops and Hawaiian shirts. Now when these Marines come back to join the same church, there's going to be some conflict, some cultural conflict, discussions about whether or not to keep the PT test in the membership. You know, are we going to add 
uh, more than just the primary colors to our crayon sets. <laughs> There's going to be some cultural conflict. A big part of what's going on in Romans is how Paul deals with this cultural conflict between Jew and Gentile. And he explains right here, like his solution, he explains that the Gentiles have been blessed by God's faithfulness to the Jews. I mean, it's really simple. He's saying that both groups are recipients of God's grace. Both groups are utterly undeserving recipients of God's grace. Paul's solution to this cultural conflict is to explain that we are all wretches in need of God's grace. This is one of the many ways that scripture tells us that the gospel, that God's plan of salvation is good enough for anyone at any time, from any culture and any background. The gospel is sufficient for all. Brothers and sisters, gospel culture is built on the truth of what Jesus did, what he accomplished in history. The truth that Jesus Christ, even though he was the son of God, infinite in perfection and goodness and power and beauty, humbled himself by becoming a servant. The son of God came to his earth, which is cursed because of our sin, and he breathed our cursed air and he walked on our cursed ground in order to take every last drop of punishment that we deserve and put it to death in his body on the cross. He was tortured and humiliated. His mother watched him die and his father turned his face away. He suffered the wrath of God Almighty. He suffered the hatred of God so that we could be loved by God, so that we could be treated and have the full privileges of sons and daughters. The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Jesus was treated like a blasphemer so that we could enjoy all the blessings that he deserved. That is nothing less than amazing grace. The good news of the gospel is the power to save sinners. It is the power to transform sinners and it is a treasure that is more precious than anything that we could ever comprehend or imagine. That is why, more than anything else, we value the gospel. It shapes how we see our worship, how we see our liturgy, how we see rest and community.
We are Pillar Church of Okinawa, and I'll be the first to tell you that we are nothing without the grace of God revealed in Jesus Christ. We are nothing without the gospel. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for who you are, God, for the joy that it is to belong to you as your sons and your daughters. God, thank you for loving us so fully and completely, God. Help us to place our trust in you. Help us to place our hope in you and the work that you accomplished. Lord, thank you for your people. Thank you for this body of believers. And I ask your rich blessing upon them. God, would you lead them, give them wisdom, confidence. May they know that in you they have everything that they need. Father, we love you. We praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.